Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo and hello everybody, Mike here. Welcome to another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. And I am super excited about today's episode. Number one, you're going to notice a few different things if you're watching on YouTube. If you're watch- if you're listening on podcast, you will notice nothing different. But uh, I am not showing my face today. I'm just showing an avatar and, and doing this, you know, vocally because I have a story to tell and there's a lot of notes that go with this story. And so instead of me just looking down and reading and kind of all these notes that I have for the story that I'm going to tell today, I thought it'd be easier just to not have my face showing and I could concentrate on just telling you guys this awesome story that I am so excited about. And the story I'm going to tell you today is the one of the tops company getting started really getting to the point of talking about the 1952 top set perhaps the most iconic set that tops has ever put out and there's a lot of backstory with that and it's really cool backstory and a lot of people may not know it and i think it is one of those things that just like baseball players and knowing the history brings a greater appreciation maybe like one of the reasons I love vintage so much is because as a kid I used to read stories about all of these great players and it just made me have a greater appreciation for their career and and how their career was told through cardboard so hopefully this story about tops and culminating with how the 52 top set came about and kind of a deep dive into that history will give you a better appreciation for where we've come from as a hobby. Uh, we, it's kind of this ho- cards have been around so long now that it just feels like they've always been around and that's just not necessarily true. Um, but I'm doing this episode solo today, so it's just going to be me talking. So this is a great episode so that if you're you know, wanting to put this on while you're sorting cards or you're in the car, or even if you're a YouTube watcher and you, you just want to put this one on in the car, There's not going to be anything to watch, so you don't have to pay attention to the screen. You can just listen and hear this stuff. And the origin of Tops is, (laughs) I find it an absolutely fascinating story. I mean, the the company itself um, started, you know, a long time ago in the 1930s, really, as the company we now know as Tops. And they started doing a thing called chewing gum. And their most popular chewing gum easily was Bazooka, easily their most successful product. And even Bazooka back then, back when I was a kid, Bazooka, and still to this day, as far as I know, has little comic wrappers wrapped around it on the wrapper. And that was something different. And 
you know, then World War II came along. And after World War II, they were able to make gum again uh, because there was a shortage of the ingredients during World War II. And so they had this rapid expansion of their business. And once they realized, okay, we're going to be in this confectionery candy gum world, we need something to go with it. And we need to start dominating baseball cards as much as we're dominating candy because those kind of went hand in hand back post-World War II and Bowman was killing it. You know, they started making cards again in 1948, of course, uh, 48 Bowman, 49, 50. Bowman was pretty much the only card game in town. There was 48 Leaf, 48 slash 49 Leaf. But the reality was Bowman was dominating that market. And so they said, we're going to start making some cards. And believe it or not, the first cards that Topps made was a set in 1948 called Topps Magic. And it was a disaster, basically. Uh, they were small little card, little photo cards. There were 252 cards in the set. Little cards, one inch by one and a half inches. And the idea was that you would sprinkle them with water and then a player image would quote unquote magically appear. It was horrible because the chemical that they used didn't really work very well. And it just had light faded images when it did work. And so that was not so great. Complete failure on that end. So that was 48. Here comes 1951, and they said, okay, uh, this guy named J.E. Shoren, who was part of the Shoren family that owned Tops from the very beginning, uh, set, created this 51 Tops set. Everybody, well, not everybody. A lot of people think that 52 Tops is the first Tops baseball set. Uh, again, they had this 48 disaster, and then there is uh, 51, and 51 is not liked by a lot of people honestly i i actually think they're pretty cool they're it's a game set it's designed as a game set no candy no gum no nothing and the cards were smaller kind of rounded corners if you've ever seen them before they have a number on them and different players but they were able to make two different sets of 52 cards each and they were able to sign a bunch of different players to that they were um they had guys like Monty Irvin has his rookie card in that set. Uh, there's Phil Rizzuto has a card and Yogi Berra. Uh, Bob Feller, I think, has a card in it. Anyway, there's a lot of great cards in the 51 top set. And so they did a, two different versions of it. They had a red back and a blue back. So two different series, I guess, if you say. And the um, cards were... I don't know, not very popular is probably the best way to put it. Uh, they were just, kids didn't like them. They loved the Bowman cards more. The Bowmans were just so much more popular. And that really almost derailed tops. It almost stopped tops in their tracks. Uh, there's a lot more of the Redbacks, by the way, out there, simply because there were cases and cases of redbacks found in the 1980s in a warehouse and those were released into the public. And so there's just a lot of more red, a lot more redbacks out there. 
So the bluebacks are a little bit more uh, sought after. I take that back, and, and I, I just remembered something. They actually, it was a game set, but it also had taffy in it instead of gum. And apparently that was a pretty crappy, <laughs> crappy taffy, no pun intended. Uh, it, and it made it, according to the material that I read, it was smelled and tasted like paint. <laughs> it doesn't sound too appealing if you're a kid wanting a treat and a, and a baseball card. It's just like, oh my gosh. Um, when you opened a pack of 51 tops, you were overcome by the terrible odor of the taffy. So at this point, Bowman clearly has an advantage in the baseball card world. Uh, in 51, of course, Bowman also releases its wonderful set, fantastic set, huge star power. Uh, two of the biggest stars of the 50s, Mays and Mantle, both had rookie cards in 51 Bowman. They had Ted Williams. They had uh, Stan Musial. So there was definitely a an edge uh, on the competition for Bowman. And Tops didn't really have an answer. Okay. And so they decided to come out with a new strategy. And they're like, okay, we're going to release cards with bubble gum. That was dangerous because Bowman kind of had this, they thought cornered the market, so to speak, on bubble gum and baseball cards. And I think Tops just said to hell with it. We're going to try and see what happens. We may get sued, but what the hell? And the key to, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that create this perfect storm of opportunity for baseball cards. I mean, you're talking about, this is early 1950s. You've got baby boomer kids all kind of coming to age, uh, being born in the late 40s. They're, they're growing up, so to speak, in these early 1950s periods. And you've got uh, just how great baseball was back in the 50s, especially in New York. And it mattered a lot because Topps was headquartered in New York. And so that gave them a huge advantage versus Bowman, which was headquartered in Philadelphia. They weren't ex exactly as close to the center of the baseball world, which was New York City in the 1950s. And so you've this this perfect storm was brewing to for the explosion of baseball cards. You had, like I said, post-World War kids growing up, great baseball being played in New York City. And then this guy comes in, his name is Cyberger. To try to put into words how influential Cyberger was on the trajectory of the baseball card world would be, no matter what I say, would do it injustice. He was the man, and I mean the man, <laughs> because he instituted and he, he just thought completely outside of the box. And what's great about Cy is he was a baseball nut. And the guy, you know, Mr. Shoren, who had kind of spearheaded the 51 tops disaster, was did not know anything about baseball. And so they, they bring in this kid. He was a kid. He called himself a kid at the time because he was 27 or 28 years old, that age group, when he started kind of 
taken over the baseball card idea for Tops, and he went to Mr. Shoren several times, was turned down several times, and finally Mr. Shoren said, all right, look, I'm going to give you a shot to to do this. And uh, he took the boom, and off he went. Uh, Cy was a guy, he was from uh, New York, from the Bronx, born in 1923, and he was, you know, served in World War II and got a job at tops, basically not even doing baseball cards. He was like a promotional program manager for a thing called gold rush jamboree. And he was a salesman for that. And he's like, golly, uh, when he was asked, when Berger was asked how much the Shorens knew about baseball, his reply was zippo, zippo, zippo. So apparently there was a huge lack of knowledge about baseball for tops and they needed someone to come in that actually knew their stuff. And so he comes in and he says, I can do this better than Bowman and kept telling him that. And sure enough, they gave him the opportunity. So what you have to deal with as a sports card producer is contracts with players and they would, you know, sign a deal with a sports card team or a sports card company. Bowman would sign guys Tops would sign guys. And even though the contracts that Tops would present to the players were obviously in conflict with the contracts that players had signed with Bowman, Tops had included uh, in its own contracts the rights to sell cards with gum starting in 1952. And they knew that no major set of baseball cards would succeed without having the current stars of the game, the heroes of these kids that were growing up post-World War II. And so Berger began hanging around at the New York Giant, at the Polo Grounds, at Yankee Stadium, Ebbets Field, getting to know these players. I mean, it was his backyard, right? He's in New York City. So going to these different stadiums was very easy for him. And as other teams would come in to visit the Yankees, Giants, and Dodgers, he would visit them too, and kind of introducing himself to, to all the 16 teams in the league, trying to get to know the player reps, trying to get to know the stars to convince them to sign with tops. And it was interesting because Berger was an employee of tops. And one thing he noticed early on was that Bowman made a huge mistake and they had outside agents signing these players to these exclusive contracts or these uh, contracts to have their image on baseball cards and they didn't really know baseball either. And Berger was able to get in and hang out with them and buy him drinks. And every time Berger would go to a uh, clubhouse, he would bring in gum and pictures, like copies of their own cards and all kinds of different stuff to kind of woo these players into signing with tops. We all know the Topps Bowman era went through 1955. I'm not going to go through all that. That's a story for another time and what happened during that bubblegum card war, but uh, which is a great book, by the way, which is where I'm getting a lot of this information. It's called The Bubblegum Card War by Dean Hanley. So worth getting a read and doing that. A lot of this information is coming from them. And uh, so he would go in and he became friends with guys like Mickey Mantle. This is Cy Berger we're talking about still. Uh, he became friends with Willie Mays. In fact, 
he was he became really good friends with Willie Mays. And he just would continually sign these players. Um, baseball players, they didn't have, you know, agents back then. They didn't have unions. They were very modestly paid and even more modestly educated. And so the contracts offered by Bowman paid the players a hundred bucks and tops was offering 125 if they signed an exclusive contract and $75 if they signed a non-exclusive contract. And a lot of these players, you know, you could walk up to them. They were so hard up for money that you could say, <laughs> this is what, uh, a lawyer said for one of the major gum companies once commented, you could walk up to one of these players and offer him 50 bucks to sign a contract to commit suicide. He wouldn't read the contract or ask what it required him to do. He'd just grab a pen and sign. Then he'd pick up his glove and run out for fielding practice. So that was kind of the mentality back then of the players. They just, Hey, 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or 75. Great. Sure. That was a lot of money back then. And so you, just see this development of these contracts you've got again tops catching the luck of being in new york at the time when all these cities were so amazingly popular all these teams in new york i should say uh then you had the 51 national league pennant race one of the most exciting of all time all of these things are happening at the onset of tops trying to uh, get up and running in this, in the baseball card world. So tops had another bit of luck that helped them spur them on. And that was Warren Bowman retiring. Uh, he retired in the summer of 51. And so it really allowed for tops to take the rank because Warren Bowman was running kind of driving the ship for that. And Bowman got sold in April, 1952 uh, to Halen Laboratories, whoever that is. And I don't know that it's always funny when you sell a company, the seller always kind of has more knowledge and understanding than the buyer can ever really understand. So I don't think Halen Labs understood what they were getting. And they didn't really take advantage of it. They kept making baseball cards actually, and, and some really cool sets that they made in the early fifties. But this perfect storm was, was happening. Right. And tops was about to take advantage of it. So here comes 1952 and let's talk about the top set in particular and tops basically Cyberger's idea was we're going to go big. We're going to make a set like no one has ever seen before. And so they made these huge cards, two and five eighths inches by three and three quarters inches. And they were 52% bigger than the Bowman cards. And there were 407 cards in the set, which was 61% more cards than Bowman's 52 set. So lots more cards, bigger size. Uh, kids just decided to spend their pennies and nickels on the better product, which was the tops product. They were bigger, brighter, uh, better in every way. And so that was a huge deal for tops. Uh, 
I mean, they were just gorgeous, right? I mean, 52 Tops cards have these mostly beautiful portraits. Uh, the faces were highly visible. And, and you also got to remember, this is the early 50s. Television is just in its infancy at this time. And televising sports games, especially baseball, even baseball, was also, you know, the only time you maybe saw a baseball game on television was the World Series. And a lot of these people that heard about heard their players being talked about on the radio, which was the primary mode of uh, hearing a baseball game was on the radio. You couldn't see these players. And so these big, beautiful baseball cards that Topps was issuing, showing these players' faces really resonated with fans because they got to see their heroes for the first time. And he tried to provide to the, basically the uh, picture, they were pictures that were colored by a local art studio. And he tried to provide each player's eye color, hair color, and even ancestry to help that artist kind of really render a, a lifelike picture. Unfortunately, that artist didn't really take full advantage of that because pretty much every player in the top set pretty much has brown eyes <laughs> and brown hair. Even uh, the great Mickey Mantle card, top, uh, card number 311, Mickey, you know, kind of appears to have a little bit of a tan. And he was kind of fair-skinned. So if you put a tops card next to a 52 tops card next to a 52 Bowman's card, you can really see how striking how much more striking the tops card is than the bowman card and tops uh 52 tops was issued in six series by the way uh they were just issued throughout the season every every couple of months they would issue a new series well since this was kind of the first time they had done this they cyberger really didn't anticipate how long it would take to do all of this and by the time the six series of 52 tops came out it was already well into football season baseball season was long over which is interesting because that six series of tops is packed with so many great cards you've got card number 311 of course the mickey mantle which is one of the most iconic cards of all time right next to him is 312 jackie robinson 313 is bobby thompson 314 is Roy Campanella. 315 is Leo DeRocher. And that was done on purpose uh, to put all those great players together, especially all these New York team players together. But they were trying to aim for that bigger market in New York. But again, you just had so many other things happening and the you know, football was happening. It was way, you know, the baseball season was over. Kids kind of forgot. They moved on. And that was kind of unfortunate, which is what makes the high series in 52 tops so desirable because so many, so fewer of those were actually bought by kids. You've got two really key rookie cards in that six series too. And I don't want to belabor this point, but it's super important to understand how big of cards the uh, Hoyt Wilhelm and the Eddie Matthews are in that set. Uh, Eddie Matthews is actually card number 407, which is the last card in the set. Uh, Hoyt Wilhelm's card number 392. And those Hall of Fame rookies are incredibly hard to find, especially in good condition. The Eddie Matthews 
is the most expensive uh, Topps rookie card ever, ever produced is the Eddie Matthews. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll say this only because I have to say it for those of you that may have never heard a podcast of mine or, or watched a video of mine, but the 52 Topps mantle is not his rookie card. His rookie card is 51 Bowman. His first Topps card, for sure, is 52 Topps, no doubt. And that's one of the reasons it's so iconic. But it's not his rookie card. So people that say, oh, it can't be the Eddie Matthews. It's the Mickey Mantle. Again, Eddie Matthews, card number 407, 52 Topps. Most expensive Hall of Fame rookie card ever that Topps has produced. Uh, Again, it was one of those misjudgments by Berger releasing that six series so late in the year that was one of its biggest failures, ironically. And it's so sad that that happened so late in the season, all those great cards. And a lot of people don't know this, but the Mantle card was actually double printed. So there there should be a ton of those out there. And there are a lot of those out there, but there, there should be a lot more if he was released double printed in an earlier series of the, of the set. I wonder where the Mantle card would stand in the annals of time. Would it be a great card? Of course. Would it be kind of what it is today? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, One thing tops also, you know, the timing of the six series was unfortunate. That was kind of a bad thing. Another, another deal is there were two huge players from the early 1950s that weren't in the 52 tops. They were not able to sign Ted Williams and they weren't able to sign Stan Musial. In fact, Stan Musial didn't sign a Tops contract even when there was only Tops. Uh, he was a Bowman guy, and then wasn't in uh, fifty-five Bowman though. Can't remember was he in fifty-four Bowman? I don't think so. No, there's no fifty-three Bowman colors. Man is uh, Musial's last card until nineteen fifty-eight Tops is between Bowman and Tops. He had a 54 Red Heart. He had other cards that were issued, but in terms of Tops or Bowman, Stan Musial's first Tops card is not until 1958, and that's an all-star card. And then he has a 59 uh, through 63 regular issue cards for Musial. But not having Ted Williams and Stan Musial in the 1952 Tops set is... Imagine how great that set would be if it not only had... Jackie and Bob Feller and Campanella and all these other great players, Eddie Matthews. And, oh, by the way, it also had a Ted Williams and a Stan Musial card. It also doesn't have a Whitey Ford card either. Uh, Ford's first Topps card wasn't until 1953. I mean, a, a major reason for that is Ford and Williams were both in the military in 1952. So that may be a reason uh, that they didn't do that. Uh, didn't have cards in the 52 top set because they weren't playing, you know, in the major leagues. So another huge example of 52 tops condition scarcity, not just scarcity period, but Andy Pafco card number one in the 52 top set is one of those cards that is, is kind of uh, hobby gold. If you can get one, it's not that they're not around, but they're so condition sensitive. As we've talked about before, kids back in the day, as they would put the sets together, would put card number one at the front and the last card at the back. 
of each series. And then as they're building their set. So card number one was always card number one. You might add another series and have a new last card in your set as you're building it. But as you would rubber band these cards, Andy Pafko would always be on the top. And so you also see that a lot with Eddie Matthews card being the last card in the set. Although it's also because Matthews is a hall of famer. There's a lot of reasons why that card was also beat up a lot because it was handled a lot. It wasn't a common that was thrown in a box and forgotten about. Eddie Matthews was a popular player and all that kind of stuff. So as we think about kind of the, legacy of 1952 tops here we are you know 70 years later from that to think what cyberger was able to create the opportunities that were in that moment the confluence of circumstances that led to this wonderful company being you know shot out of a shotgun basically and growing to what we know tops is today it is pretty unbelievable and you know to think what our what our hobby would be like without 1952 tops is not fun at all i don't even like to think about that such a great set do i think it's the prettiest top set in the 50s absolutely not uh, i think 53 is prettier uh i think 54 is great 55 is okay. 56 is gorgeous. Uh, I love the colors of 58 and 59. So is it the greatest set of the 50s for tops? No. Um, is it the most important set in the 50s for tops? Absolutely. It launched them into a new stratosphere. And hopefully, you know, as I continue this series a little bit and kind of go through some more sets, especially in the early 50s, I can uh, get through more of the bubblegum wars that happened later in the 50s. But I just thought it'd be a great episode to come on and give you guys some of that backstory, some of that history, if you didn't know it. And if you did know it, hopefully you enjoyed my telling of that history. So let me know what you think down below if you're watching on YouTube. I really appreciate it. If you're listening on podcasts, thanks, podcast, thanks, as always, for doing that. Hope everybody has a great day, great week. And as always, Keep collecting.